Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Quick note before we start today's awesome podcast. As usual, I get too excited, start blabbing away. We're talking about a lot of private companies that are in current registration for having some offerings, including a few that I've invested in. So to uh, clean things up, avoid industry scrutiny, we've bleeped out the names of the companies, but otherwise enjoy this fantastic discussion. Welcome podcast listeners. Today we have a great show for you, for all you alternative investors. I think all of our listeners are alternative investors. Our guest is the co-founder of EquityZen, which is a platform for secondary transactions in private pre-IPO companies. I've actually used them a couple of times myself. Prior to Equities In, he did capital structure arbitrage at Pomelo Capital. And before that, traded derivatives at Barclays. We're excited to have him on today. Welcome, Phil Hazlitt. Thanks, man, for having me. Phil, you're in New York. We're here in LA. And I think a good place to get started is just tell us a little bit about Equities In. Our listeners would have heard us mention it a few times as I've been a customer, user of the site for years. But why don't why don't you give us a quick overview and then we'll start to go in many different spiderweb directions. I think probably the best way to describe it is to give like a real life example of, you know, what we're trying to solve. And so think of two different people. Think of a girl, Jane, that works at that might own shares of the company because she's worked there for a while and gets issued stock options. But she lives in San Francisco or LA and her rent is incredibly expensive. And what she wouldn't mind doing is kind of creating some cash from the asset that she owns, which is the shares in this company. And since it is now, I think, a $16 billion valued company, her stock options are worth quite a bit. For her to try to get that liquidity is a little difficult. And so we've tried to provide basically an online platform for her to sell them. Unfortunately, she's going to have to find somebody that's willing to buy them. And that's why we've created this marketplace. So what we provide is accredited investors an opportunity to invest in these private tech companies that they might not even know they could have invested in. So if you give kind of this example with Jane from, you might have John that has a Fidelity account, and he might try typing in Lyft on his brokerage account at Fidelity and find out that nothing really comes up. Turns out these things are a little bit hard to access, and we're trying to solve that part. So all in all, it's a place to connect interested buyers and interested sellers, and the asset is late-stage pre-IPO tech shares. There's a lot to unpack. As I mentioned, I actually participated in the one of the rounds in the early days, as, as well as another app I love. Talk to me a little bit about the process. So say I'm an investor, I go to your site, or just private investing in general. I mean, it's a notorious area that has very little information. It's hard to find valuations. It's hard to find revenue. So we've actually been talking about this kind of concept for a while. Say you're an investor, you come to the site. What's the general process? Say I want to buy shares of something else. How's it work? Sure. So coming to the website, you get registered, you kind of put together an account similar to what you might do on other alternative investment platforms online, or kind of similar to what you might do to opening a brokerage account with a little 
uh, with a fewer hurdles than you might normally have. Once you register as an investor, you'd have a chance to look at different companies available to invest in. And so we've done deals in a little over 100 companies. You'd have a chance to browse through what we have currently available. We'd be putting together information that we've gathered from the public domain about those companies. And I think you know, if we kind of talk about this asset class specifically, Meb, you alluded, uh, you know, what you alluded to was spot on. There is a lot less information out there. There isn't really a framework on how to value companies the same way you might have if you're making public equity investments. You know, you don't have like a typical, oh, maybe I'll look at a fair value framework or a bottoms up approach or a top down approach or a technicals approach. There, There's a little bit less of that kind of guide for you. So we try to give you as much as we can about the company to help you make that decision. So when you think about pre-IPO tech companies, the types of information you'll be able to see, at least through, through our platform, is that you'll see who the existing institutional investors are. And we rewind a little bit. The typical companies we have have raised money from venture capital investors. So think of funds like Excel and Sequoia and Andreessen Horowitz. And then maybe over time, we've raised money from your growth equity players or your institutions like T. Rowe Price or Tiger Global. And so we'll put that information together, and that's usually a good benchmark to see you know, how the company's progressing, if they've attracted money from there. We'll also look at any revenue numbers the company has based on what we can find. So if you think of a, let's just talk about a, maybe a robo-advisor that's a private company. I think that's a great example. You know, a robo-advisor must disclose what their assets under management are over time. They usually talk about the types of fees that they charge. So you can actually back out an estimate of what revenue might look like for those companies. We use those kinds of tools to figure out ways to kind of show how the company's growing. And then the last part that we make available that I think is really important is we show the company's cap table based on regulatory filings we've come across. And just to give a, a bit of a description of that cap table, it kind of shows how the company has raised capital over time who they've raised from and the terms that they raised on as a real key point that we could probably talk about later. But that kind of shows, hey, Tiger Global invested at $10 a share at a billion dollar valuation. And this investment's available at $8 a share at an $800 million valuation. That gives me a bit of an idea of kind of where I'm entering this investment. And when I look at that versus how much revenue it's made, it kind of gives you a bit of a picture on whether it fits your kind of individual investment thesis, if that makes sense. Talk to me a little bit about logistics. So investor comes on there, and I know the answer to this, but you can help help us walk through. Is it, am I then negotiating what the valuation is? Is it just saying, hey, we're willing to sell our employee shares at $16 billion, Or is it you guys deciding? Is it a bid ask? How's the process on valuing the company and the offering? How's it work? So what we'll normally do is we'll work with a shareholder or a group of shareholders that are looking for liquidity. They tend to be employees or former employees that are looking for to sell. And we'll have a discussion with them on like what their pricing targets are. It's typically a discount to the last round of funding. So if you have at a $16 billion valuation or at a $70 billion valuation or whatever they're at now, you'll usually see some discount to that when you're looking at the prices made available on equities end. We're there to basically help sellers determine what price they might want to sell at. Once we've had that agreement in place, then we'll market something on our platform. And so if you saw a company XYZ on Equisense platform, you'd see a specific price that a seller is willing to sell at, and you could reserve a certain amount you want to invest. Uh, we start at $20,000 on the low end and work our way up, which may sound kind of high when you think about putting in an equity trade on your Charles Schwab account or your Ameritrade account. You can do things in you know the hundreds of dollars or even lower. But consider that the alternative before was that you'd have to write a $5 million check directly to the company when they were earlier on in their life, or you'd have to try to find the 
a way to become a limited partner in one of these venture capital firms, which maybe you could probably attest to is a pretty hard thing to accomplish given how oversubscribed they are. And so we give you the opportunity to make an investment in what we see as a much smaller size that was made available. The entire investment process, once you've kind of committed that amount, would next lead you to some online paperwork. One thing we're particularly proud of from a, from a product perspective is that everything's completely paperless. You're going to go through everything through our platform. We send updates. We have KYC and AML checks that we do automatically. We have ACH connectivity to your bank accounts to do money pulls, all in a secure environment so that it, it can be pretty hassle-free. And again, when you think about how these transactions look compared to an equity trade that you have, it's going to seem like it takes a really long time. Transactions will probably take somewhere to about four to six weeks for the entire thing to close. Some of those things are out of our control, but for us, we actually see that as a pretty big improvement on how a lot of these private transactions that happened in the past. Talk to me a little more operational logistics. So, all right, I decided I wanted to buy into some Lyft. Tell me what your business model as far as fees, and then four weeks from now, do I get a bunch of Lyft shares in the mail, or does it go into some sort of fund? How's it work? Great, and you know, one disclosure I should make is that we're going to be using Lyft here as a hypothetical example. Don't want to make any statements that that's something that's available, but if we use Lyft as an as a hypothetical, a next you would sign some paperwork that basically binds you to a fund that's going to purchase these shares from the Lyft shareholder. You would submit your bank account information. We would pull money. We would handle the logistics of sending that money to the shareholder once the company's approved the transaction. You know, a big point of these things is that we want to work completely above board and make sure that the companies know what we're doing and how we're transacting, that we're signed off. Equities in will handle a lot of the talks and discussions with the company itself. Once the company signs off on our transaction and says, hey, this group from Equities in is going to be buying a million dollars of shares at 10 bucks a share and we're signed off, what we'll do is we'll circulate closing documents online through our platform to each of our investors so then they can download, they can share with their financial advisor if they want, they can have it for their own records. They'll be able to log in and see what their whole portfolio looks like. We'll be sending updates about how the company is performing. And then I think a part that's probably of a lot of interest to, to listeners is, okay, well, hopefully the thing I'm investing in ends up going public and does pretty well. What's going to happen next, right? And and that can be a pretty, pretty interesting process that we've gotten down pretty much to science. If a company that you invest in, let's say it was uh, DocuSign, because they went publicly recently. If you invested in one of the deals in DocuSign on our platform, what would happen is that once the company goes public, we're going to work with DocuSign and their transfer agent and the people that help them with their IPO and the listing of their shares. And we're going to work on getting those shares that you kind of invested in delivered to your own brokerage account, which is pretty exciting, right? You invest in a company while it's private. You do it through Equities platform. Once the company goes public after a lockup period, which is typically about six months, you'll get the shares delivered to your brokerage account and you can decide whether you want to be a holder of those shares long term or if you want to sell them immediately. We really handle the whole transaction process and all the communications with the company. I think it's become pretty seamless and really like opened the doors for a lot of people that either knew that some of these deals were happening but didn't know how to get into them or were unaware at all that you could even invest in these private tech companies. Fees? You guys charge carry? Is it a brokerage cost fee? How's it work? So Equities owns its own broker dealer. We charge a fee as a percentage of the transaction up front. That fee is 5% to the investors. There's no other ongoing fees, so no management fee, no carry, no expense fees, nothing on the tail end at all. Now, we do have a second investment product, if investors are interested, that is actually more of like a kind of like a mutual fund or a private equity fund. For those investors that come to our platform and go, well, Phil, this is great. There's all these really interesting companies I've heard of. Not sure how to really evaluate an enterprise SaaS 
company or a cybersecurity company because it's not really my forte. But I do believe that if I had broader exposure to this asset class, I'd be able to perform pretty well. So we have like a managed fund that you could put money into where you'll get exposure to about 10 or 15 companies. And that investment fund charges a management fee and a carry. I can't give the specific numbers, but I can tell you that it's much more competitive than your traditional two and 20 model you might see from the asset class. The reason I like it is the traditional carry model can get so expensive when you have big gains on individual names, but y'all's single transaction fee to me, particularly because it's often going off at discounts to last price round, ends up with a pretty attractive position. There's something I think would be really like helpful to cover that I think would be of interest to your listeners is that the thing you highlighted about having carry on investments that only have one thing in them, it, that irritates me to no end. And, and I want to bring it up because I think it's important for your listeners, if they do see opportunities like that, to really think about what's happening here, right? If you think about a traditional hedge fund that has 30, 40, 50, or 100 different investments, and a bunch of things go up and a bunch of things go down, and you pay carry on the overall, that makes a lot of sense. If you're paying carry on a single investment, you might make investments in 10 separate funds. Nine of them could be complete duds, and you lose all your money, and the 10th one could go up call it 20%, and you're going to have a manager of that fund that's going to try to charge carry on that. And the performance is completely antithetical to the entire way of like portfolio construction and carry. So I'm glad you brought that up. It's something that I've seen, maybe not like particularly in our asset class, but in other kind of sidecar funds or feeder funds or opportunity funds that it really frustrates me because I don't think it actually accurately reflects what carry is supposed to really reference. It's good for the manager. Yeah, it is good for the manager. Talk to me a little bit about, I mean, to the extent you can, I know it's there's regulations around this. What sort of companies, you mentioned tech, but what sort of companies end up on your offering? Have you had 10 all time? Have you had 100, 1,000? What's the market cap sort of range? What's the low end? What's the high end at any given time? Like how many do you guys have on the site? I can tell you we've worked with about 110 companies at last count. The typical company profile has a valuation between $500 million and $20 billion with really a concentration towards that unicorn number of, you know, one or one and a half billion dollars where companies are late stage, don't really need too much more money before they plan to go public. That's really our sweet spot. At any given time on our platform, I'm just taking a quick look myself actually right now, we've got about 15 live deals available. So you've got a pretty good spectrum of deals from different sectors as well within tech. As you alluded to, we are focused pretty exclusively right now on venture-backed pre-IPO technology companies. But you'll see things that run the gamut. You'll see health tech, you'll see delivery companies, logistics, ride sharing, big data, AI companies virtual reality, it kind of runs the whole gamut, advertising it. So it's all over the place. And what I think is a constructive way there, you can get exposure. I've seen some articles that say like, here are some ways to invest in the logistics industry and tech development in the public markets. And it's actually a pretty diluted offering, right? It's going to be a mutual fund that has a bunch of public companies and then a sliver of private ones. Being able to get like that direct exposure is is a relatively new thing that you can get through equities end. Imagine some listeners on here saying, okay, I get it. It's pretty cool. What the heck happens if I invest in a company or something like it and they just decide to stay private forever? They don't get acquired. They don't IPO. What ends up happening with the shares? Do you just kind of hold on as a private investor and that? What's the scenario there? Two things I think to note there. One of the reasons why we focus on venture-backed companies is that you're typically investing in a company that's taken on a lot of investment from venture capitalists that have their own expectations on exits. So a typical venture capital fund will probably have a 10-year term to it where they're making investments in years one through four, call it. 
So if that venture capitalist has had their investment and they wrote a very large check for a 10 or 20% stake in a company and the company is still private 10 or 12 years later, that venture capitalist actually has an ability to kind of push that company towards an exit, whether it's by means of acquisition or IPOs. In one way, your, your incentives, the incentives for the company are aligned with what you know, your audience might have, which is hopefully liquidity in the near term for these deals, because they also want liquidity as well. The second part I'll add is that if you're in an investment and you've been in it for a while and you actually want some liquidity now while the company's still private and maybe you've even seen some gains because the company's raised more money while it's private at a higher valuation, you can actually sell your stake back through EquityZen's platform to another investor that might want to take on that risk. So it's kind of like secondary of a secondary, if you will, that, that we offer. As we think about where we are in the cycle, depending on who you ask, your 10 bull market, your five bull market, whatever, a long, a long, nice, big, fat upcycle in equities. Talk to me a little bit about the macro situation. Is it something that theoretically, if you look at an offering, if the number of listings and volume is going to be more in a rip-roaring bull market time, or it's going to be more in sort of a, a down... I don't think you've existed during a bear market yet, but the curiosity of it being a down market, because actually employees may even want more liquidity then. Talk to me a little bit about how you see the cycle playing out. Where do you think we are? What's going on? So selfishly, being a marketplace, you actually are looking for a little bit of volatility because that's when you tend to get stronger liquidity needs from sellers or more disagreement on price, which leads to more collisions and more transactions. So one way we kind of think about what might happen in a bear market is that you'll likely see employees and ex-employees that have this stock and are looking to sell would likely be willing to take larger discounts to recent rounds of funding. We have strong conviction that a good cohort of our buyers are going to be looking for you know value opportunities if that were to come through. One thing I think about from a retail investor perspective is that in certain asset classes that are a little more new, if things really go south from a macro perspective, I would imagine that a lot of retail investors are going to stop looking for value specifically and might just wait it out, right? Whereas when you look at institutional investors, uh, of which we have a number as well on our platform, they are more of looking for opportunities. So not to take the extreme of like a distressed investor, but if you kind of think of that mentality as markets take a turn, it brings kind of opportunity for a certain base of people that have dry powder, and that's certainly the case in the private equity world right now, that brings opportunity. And the other thing I kind of think about from a tech perspective is I looked at some of the generational now public tech companies and when they went out and went public and when they grew their businesses. And so the ones I like to think about are Facebook that really grew their business from 2006 to 2010 before going public in 2012. And I think it's fair to say that 2008, 2010 was a tough time around business. LinkedIn went public in 2011, right after the recession, and they've become a generational player as well. And if you look back even over a decade, you look at Netflix that went public in May of 2002 after kind of the entire bubble burst. So while tech's not going to be insulated from any type of market pullback, there is still great opportunity for kind of the top player in any space to still thrive and, and succeed, even in a, in a bear market or a pullback. And I guess actually one last thing before I even forget about that is companies have been pretty vigilant about raising capital in the private markets. You've got a lot of companies that have raised hundreds of millions of dollars literally at a time from places like SoftBank and TPG and otherwise that should hopefully be pretty smart about their cash so that they can weather the storm of any type of recession or market pullback or you know economic slowdowns. I'm optimistic that companies have positioned themselves well 
I'm also optimistic that within the sea of 180 unicorns, the top players in each sector are still going to be able to thrive and survive and you know emerge victorious, for lack of a better term, through any type of recession. So those are the types of things that we think about a lot of the business because, as you're right, Equizen got started in 2013. We've been around for about five and a half years, and we have yet to see any bear market through those five years. There's a lot of macro commentary from academics, journalists, gurus, everything else about the public versus private market sort of transition phase. And you've heard a lot of lip service about there's less public companies and whether it's the regulations, all that good stuff. Maybe give us an overview of, of how you see that world, the distinctions, and also what the state of the IPO market is like. We keep mentioning mentioned they're considering going public in 2019, recently in the news. Talk to me about both that private public market transition over the past decade and also what your feelings are on the IPO state of affairs. The trend is super frustrating for me. The number of publicly traded companies, I think, is down a third or a half over the last, call it, decade or so. And part of that's because of regulations, as you said. You know, It became harder to write research about small companies. It, made, it became harder to make money as a as a broker on microcap stocks, which also kind of led us here. And then lastly, you had Sarbanes-Oxley in the wake of a couple real big fraud cases in, in Enron and WorldCom that basically made it really expensive to go public too, right? And where that's what that's all created, if we think of the lens of your listener, is that as a retail investor, you used to be able to invest in companies when they were valued at two or $300 million, and you got to participate in the appreciation and the growth of that stock over time. Amazon not to cherry pick, but Amazon's probably like a great example where, you know, 20 years ago, they went public at, I think, a $400 million valuation. They had like $15 million in revenue. And obviously, you would have done pretty well there. And then you're going to have a company that in 2019 or 2020, like an or something is going to go public at a, let's just say, a $40 billion valuation. And the money that's going to be made there on the, on the capital appreciation is going to be in the hands of like a half dozen or like a dozen investors, which to me is pretty frustrating. Our tagline and mission statement here is private markets for the public. And we stand by that from day one, which is that those returns should be sitting in the hands of like individuals or else the, the whole stock market is broken. And I think something gets us excited about, I actually unfortunately don't see it changing too much from like a primary capital perspective, meaning that when you've got a fund like SoftBank with $93 billion of capital to deploy over the next few years, they write a pretty compelling story for if, for a company or for a founder to take their money rather than go public, right? I mean, it's less scrutiny. You can get the deal done faster. You don't have quarterly financial reporting that you have to deal with. You don't have activist investors coming after you. I think at last check, it's something like one in 10 or one in 20 publicly traded companies said that they had been approached by some version of an activist while they were publicly traded. There's a lot of reasons why if you're a company and you're running it that you don't want to go public. What we're starting to see, though, and I think it's a good thing to discuss, is that the idea of staying private for a long time has its consequences on the people, right, and on the people that work at your company. They signed on to this dream that you sold them that we're small now, we're just, you know, a guy, a girl, and a dog, and a coffee shop, and an app, and we're going to grow this, you know, the next Facebook. And then it's like eight years later, that person's still making below market salaries, sitting on this giant cash wealth. And you're saying, you know what, we're pretty lucky, we can just raise money from a private equity firm and kind of keep this keep this thing going. That's going to lead to people leaving the company, it's going to lead to resentment, it's going to actually make hiring a lot harder. An anecdote I heard from an employee at one of these private tech companies on our platform is that uh, public tech companies like Google and Facebook are basically matching offers to engineers saying, hey, we're going to pay you more. We're going to give you the same equity package. But just remember that a year in, once your equity is vested, you can just sell that thing in the open market. I think that highlights kind of what's happening here. Companies are well within their right to stay private for a long time. And I get that part. But if you don't address the liquidity part, 
you're going to have some issues within your organization. And then on the flip side for investors, if you're not kind of participating in this part of the asset class to the extent you can get access to it, you're going to miss out on kind of the beta that you might have seen in your, you know, your tech portfolio of 1999 or, well, maybe not 1999, maybe 2003 or 2004 when things were public earlier. What's been the response from the companies? It seemed to be a pretty high profile situation where Krasaka at one point was buying up a ton of private shares and private companies when the, the CEOs were actively not happy about it. You mentioned, I think, that you get company permission or blessing or something of that sort. Maybe talk a little bit about that. And, and what's been the general response? Do they see it as an employee perk? Do they see it as a necessary evil or a headache? What's kind of the process? You hit the nail on the head. And I, I kind of think of it chronologically on how attitudes have really changed over time. So if I thought about 2010, around that time, the idea of selling shares of a private company while you're still an employee was very taboo. It suggested that you weren't aligned with the company, you didn't believe in the prospects, you weren't along for the ride, you weren't part of the mission. And it was really frowned upon. In 2015, the kind of the conversations we had with companies was behind closed doors, it kind of said, we understand that this is a problem. We want to see if we can help contain it and address liquidity in small ways, but we're not too comfortable engaging a place like EquityZen until we have more conversations with our employees, et cetera, et cetera. And so they kind of dodged our calls. In 2018, What's happened is that behind closed doors, companies have approached and said, hey, we get this is an issue. We've been private for 10 years. We want to provide liquidity. We heard that you have a process. What does it look like? And that's been really, really firing for us is that, you know, companies are being a little more proactive than reactive when they're addressing liquidity because they know it's a competitive advantage for talent, meaning that if a company that says, hey, you can't ever sell your shares in the market may actually detract people from applying for a job there. That's pretty terrifying if you're in Silicon Valley and trying to get an an engineer is trying to find a needle in a haystack. And then where I where I believe it's going, I'm incentivized to see this happen, is that I think in a few years, you'll have companies talking about this openly, which where they'll say, we're going to ride this gravy train of being private for a while. We're going to keep taking private capital. We're going to address the elephant in the room, which is that employees are getting stock and we're going to help them with liquidity through means we can, which might be through tender offers. It might be through helping employees list their shares at a place like EquityZen. Maybe it's that they have their own existing institutional investors kind of put in bids for other shares they want to keep buying. I think that's where we may get to in the next few years. You're going to have like a quasi-private, quasi-public market for a lot of these tech companies. And that's not to say that it couldn't be opened up for a lot of other sectors. There's huge private companies out there. I think of things like Cargill, where you've got a private company that's worth, you know, tens of billions of dollars. Maybe it wasn't the traditional venture back story, but you've got a lot of people that are holding equity. And I think there's a lot of opportunity to for companies to kind of build that into a more robust marketplace to kind of keep everyone happy. As someone who is a founder CEO, I would love to be able to say, look, one of the perks is quarterly or whatever it is, you have the ability to sell some or all your shares. Why every company on the planet wouldn't implement a process like that? It would be a really thoughtful way of making life easier for the employees. For someone who has done two crowdfunding rounds, so I think we raised about three and a half million. I think we're the only asset manager I know of that's gone the crowdfunding route, had to do it with accredited investors. Where do you see that going? I know there's a little grumblings about potentially easing some of the accreditation rules to invest in private companies. Do you see, if you had to handicap it, is is that something you see as an opportunity in, in the future where you guys could open this up to anyone? Is it a headache? Is it not really your focus? Do you think the government will ever change it? What's your opinion? 
The new potential regulation that would allow for a redefining of the accredited investor, I think is long overdue. One thing that I've been frustrated with is that the accredited investor definition is purely a wealth definition right now. It requires having a certain amount of assets. I think it's a million dollars in your non, you know, outside of your household or 200K a year of income. At last count, that was about eight, maybe nine million Americans, a few percent of the country. So, you know, it's like, congratulations, you've opened up this asset class to the 3%, right? It hasn't really done what we were hoping to do, which was give your average investor, your average standard person, the ability to invest in these companies. The redefining of the accredited investor definition to allow for technical understanding to qualify you, I think is a huge one. And for those that aren't kind of caught up there, the idea is that if you can show a material amount of understanding in a certain sector, let's just say that you're a doctor, then you can show that you have the wherewithal to evaluate investments in the medical device or healthcare sector. That makes so much sense to me. And having a knowledge-based rule, I think, is something we're excited about. I don't think it would be too much of a heavy lift or like a burden for us. I think it will actually open up the market a lot. One of the first places they're planning to start it with, assuming things get approved by the Senate and the House, is that if you are a registered representative, so you're like a broker, you'll be able to invest in deals, which makes a lot of sense. You know, one of, the, one of the things we joke about is that some of the people on our team that are registered reps are saying, it's kind of funny that my, my grandma can invest in these things and she can't even name any of the companies on our website. And yet I can't, even though I know everything about them. It's a perfectly good point, perfectly valid points. I'm definitely very excited about that legislation. I think that the Jobs Act was a little bit off the mark in its first iteration. Ma'am, I'm not sure if you used like Reg CF, which was like a, a crowdfunding structure that was supposed to open it up to non-accredited investors. But I've been told that using that structure was like pretty onerous and expensive from like a compliance standpoint and from a fundraising standpoint that a lot of people have shied away from it. So I think that one missed the mark. It was well-intentioned in theory, but again, like a lot of like legislation in execution, it was really difficult to actually enact. I think some of these small tweaks to like the definition of the accredited investor is going to be really helpful. It's going to open up the asset class to more and more people over time. And it's not going to be a wide, it's not going to blow the door wide open where, you know, all of a sudden any American can kind of, or anybody in the world can kind of just like invest in in Uber, but it's going to be a step in the right direction. And I think that's probably the prudent way to, to approach these things when it comes to alternative assets, because they're kind of new for the retail investors portfolio. I think baby steps make sense. I'm conflicted because in one hand, I say people can already invest in cryptocurrencies, pink sheet stock, public stocks that regularly go to zero. Percentage on public stocks, it's something like two thirds underperform the index, almost half have a zero rate of return over their life quarter go to zero essentially. And that's public stock. If you're going to be an equal opportunity idiot on how to lose 100% of your money, I don't know why private investments would be excluded when there's already things that are 10x as volatile. And and I've actually changed my mind over the years where people used to talk about the illiquidity premium and the downsides of being locked up in private equity. But I actually think it's a, it's a huge benefit where most people that have access to public markets, as we know, do really dumb things like chase returns, buy at the top, sell at the bottom over and over. And in private markets, you don't have a choice. You're, you buy some of these shares of these companies, you're stuck until they go under M&A, IPO. Or, it's, it's interesting to me. On the flip side, do I say most people are probably still going to get pummeled investing in private markets and investing in breweries and all sorts of other investments? Probably. But I don't know that I have a firm opinion on it. The more freedom to do whatever he wants, the better. And there's no reason to only allow, like you said, 3% of the world to invest in, in private 
it seems very arbitrary. The people that listen say, okay, I'm interested. I got my ETF portfolio, but I'm interested and in, I don't really have much exposure to this world. would like to add 5% of my portfolio to this, this asset class that's being underrepresented because companies are staying private. Talk to me about some of the best ways to think about starting to build a portfolio and invest. And um, we talked about the lack of information and some of the challenges. Or what are some suggestions or thoughts or due diligence or questions to ask about some of these investments? How do they go about building a portfolio? Anything they should think about? You know, shameless plug from us, but on our Equity Zen blog, we cover kind of a guide to pre-IPO investing that covers the different things, a couple of things to look at, but I'll highlight some of the ones that I think are really important. Give me a link. We'll post it to the show notes. So the things we think of it at Equity Zen when kind of investing, I'll think about maybe like how it fits as that 5 to 10% in a portfolio and then think a little more granular than the companies and what to look for. So agreed, I think it should be part of kind of an alternative investment, high risk, willing to lose it all part of a portfolio, probably similar to how people think about crypto or maybe real estate investing or angel investing. Key things to think about are to start small, make investments that are small in size and diversified. So make as many small bets as possible. I saw that you had James Calcanis on your on your show. He probably gave a similar guide on angel investing, which is like you kind of got to put a lot of bets out there. Fortunately, with late stage companies, I think the portfolio can be a little bit smaller because the hit rate should be a lot higher. Right? We're not looking at a early stage venture portfolio where out of 10 investments, seven go to zero, two do okay, and one's phenomenal. When you're talking about late stage tech, you're looking at companies that are pretty grounded. The idea of complete bankruptcy is relatively low, right? I mean, they're sitting on a lot of cash. They have a lot of revenue going. You know, alternatives for exit are going to be like some type of acquisition at below the price you invested or maybe make, taking out some more money and taking out dilution. So I think putting together a portfolio of kind of what we're trying to do with our managed fund of 10 to 15 companies, it makes a lot of sense for diversification. Now, when you think of like what you want to look at with each of those companies, there's no specific rubric on what to look for. But the items that I think are really important are you look at who the existing investors are in the company. You can get some idea of how those companies are performed. Generally, any venture capital firm that's been around for over 20 years has done really, really well because they've had to raise a bunch of funds. And it means that their first funds have continued to do well and their second, third, fourth, and fifth. So I would look for a historically successful venture capital fund that led a round in that company. I think that's a great prospect. I would look for a recent round of funding that's happened in the last six to 18 months so that there isn't too much information asymmetry on how the company's performed since then, right? Ideally, you're kind of investing the day after a company announces a round at you know, a $20 million valuation and you get in at 16 and then you kind of know that somebody just wrote a very large check based on a lot more information that you got. I think that's something to really think about. Some other frameworks to consider are, do you think this company is going to be able to defend itself against tech giants? Is this company somebody, is this a company that's building a product that Google's going to offer for 50% cheaper and is going to just take over the market whenever they feel like? Or is it the kind of company that can stand on its own? and really be its own player, right? In, in tech, we always uh, people always talk about, it's like a winner-take-all or winner-take-most type industry where networking effects and other items can really lead to basically one dominant player. I think a great stat I heard from LinkedIn's era was that at one point, I think there were 30 or 40 venture-backed professional network sites. And I'm sure that a few of them looked really promising even to the final stages before LinkedIn kind of obliterated everybody. So if you can cap some visibility into a company's ability to become its own standalone player, that's great. And then lastly, things that I look at that are publicly available are any revenue numbers and revenue growth. What you like to see in late stage companies is that they've been able to continue to grow revenue at a healthy clip, and that could be somewhere between kind of 50 to 150%, even if they've hit that $100 million revenue number. 
what you might see a lot and what you probably see as a venture capital investor is a big drop off when companies are kind of growing. They say, hey, we grew revenue from one to five to 25 to 30, right? You have a lot of companies that like can't really hit that escape velocity and really build a defendable business that continues to grow. So we look at revenue growth. We look at a multiple of revenue as far as valuation goes. So determining if a company is worth 800 million and they did 100 million in, in revenue last year, that's an eight times multiple. We'll take a look at other comps of similar type companies in the public domain and see where they're trading, see if they have a similar profile. That gives us a good kind of gauge onto if the company feels overpriced or underpriced. So there's a couple of things that that go in, but I, I can't stress enough the idea of kind of being able to invest almost alongside some really tenured, really successful, really validated venture investors. They got access to a ton of information, they did a lot of due diligence, and that picked this company over kind of the other ones in the space. To me, that just speaks volumes, and I think that's one of the opportunities you get in like a secondary market investment versus a primary. We talked a lot about this in a book we wrote called Invest with the House on the public markets that was looking at following some of the top public market investors. Are there any, but if you had to give maybe a representative sample of some of the top names that you think are interesting, are there any that come to mind? You know, one that I like to talk about because they're so open and candid about it is institutional venture partners. They are a late stage investor. They write kind of 50 to $100 million checks. They were in Snapchat. They were in a couple other big ones. They actually talk about, I think something like a 35 or 40% historical IRR, which is crazy when you think about that over the period of 30 years. But they have that like publicly on their website. So I think that alludes to, you know, the idea that investors that have been around for a while have a lot of vintages of their funds show that they have a track record of success. Success attracts more success in the venture capital world, right? People go to places like Sequoia, which is another one, you know, the best companies pitch Sequoia because they want Sequoia to invest in them. And when Sequoia does well, it's a confirmation circle that will bring more great companies to Sequoia. And you have kind of a networking effect that, that works well. So as an investor, I look look for investors like Sequoia, Institutional Venture Partners, Spark Capital, Andreessen, Founders Fund. I'm kind of rattling off a bunch, but I think they're the ones that you, you kind of see associated a lot with, with big successes. Benchmark's another one that, that we see popping up a lot as well. Should investors be concerned about any issues with the different share classes? You know, a lot of times you'll hear these really complicated capital structure where some fund may have like 50 different owners with different preferences and overhangs and all these really weird things. Is that something that you guys say, no, 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 we only do common stock or we only do this, that and the other? What's the anything we need to be careful of there? Definitely some things to look into. You know, I think you're, you're talking about how Mostly institutional investors that invest in these companies and provide funding are issued preferred stock. And then most of the employees and the founders are issued common stock. And it sits as like a junior version of stock versus preferred. Where it comes into play and it probably has the biggest potential financial impact for an investor is that if a company gets sold and it's kind of a ho-hum or not great exit, and that usually means that it below, it's below a valuation the company was worth before, preferred stock investors have the right to basically get their money back or participate pro rata in, in what the company is worth at exit. Common stockholders don't have that preferred liquidation part, which is called a liquidation preference. I strongly advise investors if they're to look through deals on our platform or if they see them elsewhere or if they're going to become angel investors to ask those types of questions about what type of stock they're getting, what different scenarios might play out where they're going to get less money than they might have thought. One thing that we do is for every offering we have on our platform, we walk the investor kind of which stock they, they'll be investing into, where that sits on 
a company's pecking order and what some scenarios might be where they would get you know less money or maybe more money than they had. And to answer kind of your last question, we do have offerings available in preferred stock as well. Sometimes you might have an investor that invested in a company six years ago and got preferred stock and say, you know what, company's grown a lot can't really add too much value anymore. I was an angel investor kind of helping them with their first five hires. Now there's 600 people. I would love to take some chips off the table, return some money to my LPs or kind of show some gains. We see that happen as well. So you guys do an awesome job on the content. And I, despite having only done a few investments on your site, spent a lot of time on your site, flipping through a lot of the companies, doing research and, and trying to get up to speed on some ideas and watching and watching as gets more expensive every time I check in, which is a site that I've followed for a long time. Are there any other sites or research portals or areas that private investors could go that you think do a particularly good job of education or that might be great resources or books or podcasts or anything else you think is particularly useful to the the private late stage investor? I've got a few ideas. It's a bit of a playbook and something we suggest when, when we have new hires here at the company to get up to speed. There's one book in particular called Venture Deals. Don't recall who the author is, but Venture Deals does a really good job about talking about the different terms that you might see if you're going to be a venture capital investor and where it's really helpful for someone that might get into this asset class is you'll be able to better understand how investors are structuring their deals and what that means for you if you're going to invest in things that are in common stock or preferred stock. I think that's a really good place to start. I think that was, was that Brad Feld's book? I think he might have wrote it with somebody else. Yeah. Is a VC... Brad Feld and Jason Mendelson, VC out of Boulder, I think. Read that, and I, I agree with you. Great book. A couple of VCs write some really interesting blogs, particularly on later stage items that I think merit some mention. There are a couple of folks at Redpoint Ventures. So there's a gentleman named Tom Tungas, T-U-N-G-U-Z. And there is another guy there at Redpoint that basically, they do a lot of teardowns of companies that are just about to go public. So when a company is about to go public, they'll file kind of this thing called an S1. And the S1 is the first time where the company says, we've been private for 10 years, but look at all the things we've done. It's so much information to digest that having some resource that kind of points to what numbers to look at, what to consider, I think is incredibly valuable when you kind of use that and say, all right, well, let's mm-hmm. let's two years back and think what that means for private tech companies that are available on equities end. It looks like there's a lot of focus on sales churn and customer retention, pressed operating margins. How should we think about that in the space of a, a pre-IBO company? I think they do a really good job. Fred Wilson at Union Square Ventures has a great blog that covers a couple different points that come up a lot on, on secondaries and, and late stage investing. Lastly, there's a couple daily newsletters that I'm sure some of you, that, that you probably are subscribed to, Meb, but some of your investors on your uh, podcast do too. There's one called Term Sheet that's written by a woman named Polina at Fortune. And then there is also one called ProRata, which is written by Dan Permac over at Axios. They cover like kind of all the venture capital deals that are happening. They tend to home in on certain things that are happening in the space, whether it's SoftBank's big fund or whether it's other items. And I think that's another great place to stay up to speed. Really useful and helpful. As all of your dozens of interns have left for the summer, what sort of ideas did these crazy youngsters kick out? As you you guys look to the future and think about your business, are you going to kind of stick to your knitting and say, look, this is our focus, this is what we're doing? As you look to the horizon, are you saying, no, actually, we're going to expand into 
into foreign equities or alternative investments or any other ideas. Any general brainstorm thoughts on the space as a whole as we look into pretty close to being the end of the 20 teens into the 2020s? Some things on our plate that we're excited about are that we felt we built a really great infrastructure, like a tech infrastructure for providing liquidity for illiquid assets, but it shouldn't just stop at the pre-IPO level. I think the two things that alternative assets suffer from a lot that we can help with, and I think we're going to work on helping with are one area of need are things that have long t- times for ownership, large blocks, meaning like they're very expensive as a whole and don't have liquidity. So like the ones that come to mind for me are art, right? There's very expensive art pieces that you hold for a long time as investment and limited partnership stakes. So if you're an investor in a private equity fund, then there's a 15-year maturity on it. So that, that's kind of one problem, right? There's that part of the asset class. The second one is that in general, there's a lot of investment opportunities that would really benefit from aggregation, meaning that a thing like farmland could be an interesting investment opportunity, but probably only makes sense if $50 million is coming through the door. That means that you've got to aggregate a lot of buyers that, that want access. And so we're trying to answer both of those. I think the first one is really a marketplace problem, what we thrive in, which is connecting buyers with sellers. And the second is really a capital raising problem, which we are working on alongside a number of others, which is how can you use technology to get a lot of small checks into an investment in mass? So those are the things we focus on. What that means for kind of the next few years at Equities End, wouldn't be surprised if you logged on in you know six or 12 months and saw that we have an offering in a completely new asset class. You couldn't really put 20K into before, but now you can. That's really like our main goal. And you know, an asset class where somebody, whether it's an institution or, or a fund manager, where they thought they were holding on an asset that they would have to have on their portfolio for 10 years, now realizes they can sell a piece of it. That's what I'm pretty optimistic you'll be able to see through us uh, coming down the pipe. Please go start the farmland side. I would love that so much. And if you don't do it, I'm going to reserve farmland zen as soon as I get off this podcast. <laughs> art art zen, baseball cards zen. You know what's interesting? So we had a, a good buddy on the podcast a few months ago, Van Simmons. He was part of the group that created, invented the rating system for coin rare coins in baseball cards called PCGS or something professional coin grading service basically it's a brilliant concept because it turned essentially a wild west into a securitized asset to where if you wanted to go buy a 89 Ken Griffey that's rated 10 or whatever the scale is on coins, 70, you could do it and no longer have the worry. And so that it's kind of interesting in your world. I mean, I would love to be able to go to a website. I don't have any money to do this, but theoretically, I'm sure lots of people would, Jeff Gunlock or someone, where you could go on and trace the value of this Picasso of the past 50 years and how it's done and who the buyers have been and the information. What a fascinating marketplace. And it takes away the uncertainty of getting screwed. I feel like so many websites, the biggest problem, I mean, eBay, total disaster, Amazon, total disaster on buying products that aren't legit. Or I think there's a big premium to people getting what they're they're expecting to get. So I'm a eager watcher of whatever you guys roll out in the coming years. In financial markets, you know, how that was initially solved for for unique assets, whether 20 years ago it was like high yield bonds or it was like credit default swaps is that you had a clearinghouse and and that helped to like verify that somebody actually owned what they had and it was real. That works as long as the clearinghouse is doing fine. And so that's kind of one thing to consider. And the second part, yeah, you're totally right. With the access to data that you have in certain asset classes and the ability to actually run analysis on that data, which I think has kind of been the newest thing over the last few years, you should be able to open up the idea of like standardization, ranking, scoring, and rating 
of new asset classes that you could never do before, right? I, I think about this like farmland, actually. If I were to go out there and like rank the opportunities to invest in farmland, I have no idea where I would start. But I'm pretty sure there's probably data sets that kind of show which ones have performed, how weather impacts them, and that kind of thing. I, yeah, I get super excited about that. I, I'm frankly just excited to get to a point where an individual investor can actually build a portfolio that looks like what you might have at a Harvard endowment or something like that, where you've got real estate, you've got timberland, you've got all sorts of things in it. And instead of putting in $500 million a time, you put in $1,000 at a time. That's what gets me excited. And I think, you know, that standardization part is, is how you get there. A couple more quick questions and we got to start winding down. Can't talk that much about current offerings. What, what have been some of the big successes that you can point to on the platform that have eventually either gone public or got bought out? And also, have there, have there been any major flame outs as well? The biggest ones have been of late... Um, we did a number of transactions. Aura, which is kind of a lesser-known subscription billing company, the speaker system, which was about to go public in January of last year, and then ended up getting scooped up by for two billion dollars. Uh, so the real estate online real estate platform. So those have been a couple of, of the ones that that we've had you know some success with. We've seen some companies go out and go public at valuations that were much higher than people had done deals on our platform. We've seen deals that were roughly the same price, maybe a little bit lower. We've actually kind of been fully transparent on how our exits have performed. Again, I'll, I'll send you a link map to to show that kind of shows through July of this year how all of our exits had done. And it reflected a small data set, but it reflected what I kind of imagined it would look like a few years ago, which is that most of the companies were not going to have that grand slam ratio that you have at VCs where you hope that one in 10 companies really, really makes it. And then a bunch of them could be duds. So you're going to have a much more balanced exit profile where you're going to have out of 13 companies, you're going to have 12 of them actually exit, one of them is going to go belly up, and then you're going to have a, you know scaling returns on those other 12. Maybe you have a couple that kind of double or triple. And that's kind of actually how it's shaken out. So I'm optimistic there on kind of like what 2018 and 2019 is going to bring. Seems like the IPO window is pretty wide open. You know, there's two companies that have been on our radar that, that went public this morning, filed for an IPO. So I think companies are kind of gearing up to, to start listing again. I think a lot of that commentary is a reflection of just simply where you are in the company life cycle. The angel, early stage seed, Series A, you're at these companies that are $10 million and the odds are very different than companies that are in the billion dollar range simply because they actually probably have some revenue. You guys do a little due diligence, they're venture backed. So it's gonna be probably more singles and doubles. Have you seen, and maybe you can talk to this for logistics. I mean, one of the biggest challenges in investing, of course, is avoiding the tax man. People invest through IRAs, retirement accounts. Have you seen it done? Is it hard? Do you have any integrations? Are there any other tax avoidance ideas that you think are, are particularly impressive or useful that investors utilize? On the self-directed IRA front, we have partnered up with a handful of them to kind of make the investment process a little smoother. We have worked with Pensco quite a bit, which is a pretty familiar one based out in California. We have worked with Millennium Trust. Um, they've been really great and they have a pretty good tech product. Using a self-directed IRA, I think, is a great way to make these investments because they're in your retirement account. They're pretty illiquid anyways, unless you're approaching 70 and a half years old. Kind of actually aligns well with you know the time horizon in that portfolio. So we certainly work with those. There's an integration as well that makes it pretty seamless. We've also seen investors invest out of their own, their own trusts as well. We don't really help with actually the formation of them, but we've seen 
a number of different structures come through. And I think the one, the one thing I'll add that's a benefit, if you invest in one of Equities Ends deals and they go public, when you receive the shares, that's not considered a taxable event. It's when you actually sell the shares into the market. So if you bought into DocuSign on our platform, just say 11 months ago, and then you get the shares tomorrow, that's not going to be seen as a short-term capital gain. That's going to be seen as basically a transfer and not a taxable event. If you wait another month to sell your shares, then you're going to be eligible for long-term cap gains. Those are a couple of things when I, when I think about taxes on the investor side. On the shareholder side, it can get a little messier because you got stock options and, and whatnot. That's how I think about the investor side. There's a new startup called that we had plugs in pretty seamlessly into, I know, AngelList. Uh, that may be one worth looking into Definitely. listeners slash Phil. It's a, it's a pretty nice uh, new entrant. I think most of the companies wouldn't qualify because it's too late stage for either the, the QSBS rules or the new opportunity zones. We got really excited about the prospect for public or late stage private being in opportunity zone rules, which are just now getting finalized. We, we started reserving some tickers on, uh, on the exchanges for an ETF. But I think it looks like it either has to be an original issuance or a certain size. Is that any areas you look into at all? Or is that something due to the the late stage is probably not going to work? Intimately familiar with both would not really apply with any of our transactions, just given the stage that they're in. All right. We need to hire a few lobbyists to to (laughs) be able to change those rules because I have OZ as a ticker, which I think used to be an Australian ETF that I thought would have been perfect. Uh, We'll sit on them for now. Phil, a couple more questions. We get to roll it down. In your personal journey which is we didn't really get into today. We may have to have you back on next year and and chat more about it. As you look back, is there anything, whether you're doing cap structure, by the way, what does capital structure arbitrage mean? Can you you talk to us real quick about listeners, if a lot of our listeners have, have heard that phrase? Capital structure arbitrage refers to looking at the entire capital structure of one single company and looking at all of its different securities and investment products that are related to that security and seeing if there's opportunities to kind of buy one and sell the other. Probably the best example to think of is that if you have a company that has a bunch of bonds outstanding and they trade publicly, there might be an opportunity to buy those bonds and short the stock because one security is reflecting prospects of the company that are not in line with what the equity might say as well about the company. You find these dislocations and it became much more interesting when as more and more more kind of investment uh, securities came out when you started having equity derivatives, credit derivatives, loan derivatives, convertible bonds, long dated stock options. There was an opportunity for like kind of a cornucopia of things to buy and sell. And at any given moment, you could have opportunities to kind of arb out the difference between the two of them. So I spent a couple of years doing that, which was uh, very interesting before I started Equity Zen. As you look back on your career, what, what has been the most, your own personal, most memorable investment or trade that you can recall, good or bad, equities and related, it could be derivatives related, it could have been comic books when you were younger. Anything come to mind? Oh, I got a great one. When I was maybe about nine or 10 years old, I grew up in Singapore. I went to an American school there, grew up in Singapore, but every summer we'd go back to California where my grandparents were. My brother and I were playing a lot of Magic the Gathering, so not sure if you're a fan. I know what you're talking about. Pretty nerdy. It's very nerdy, actually. It's basically like an action card trading game where you play against each other. It's kind of like Dungeons and Dragons with a deck of cards or like Pokemon trading cards. Found out that these cards were really hard to get in Singapore, but they weren't that hard to get in, in uh, California. So we, my brother and I, kind of started up a business of buying these cards in bulk in California, bringing it back to Singapore, 
selling them to a bunch of kids that were part of the you know the same nerdery that we were at at the shopping mall playing this game all the time and were able to make a bit of a killing that was kind of like my first foray into commerce so that that one is always pretty memorable for me i feel like so many kids like their first introduction to investing and kind of finance is literally it's arbitrage whether it's (laughs) you know buying a pack of gum and selling selling them off for each piece is more expensive I, i think i got into trouble in school for buying a bunch of stink bombs and selling them and distributing them and ended up getting suspended for that. But it's funny. Like that's, I, you hear so many stories about that, that it's, it's really funny. With baseball cards. I feel like it happens all the time. It's, I think as a, as a kid, it's one of the first like active resale markets that you come across where like you get a lot of utility out of the, the first part of it, right, which is opening packs of cards and buying them and seeing what you get. And the fact that once you open it, it's not done, like you can do more with it, pretty exciting. And so I think that's kind of like a gateway into like trading or arbitrage for a lot of people. Well, it's funny, my, my brother and I existed in the generation that really experienced the baseball card boom and certainly oversupply and kind of killed the market for the next generation. <laughs> but I have so many memories about going through baseball cards, so many stories of my brother taking advantage of me. I learned a lot of street smarts of being naive and getting taken advantage of by my brother. But the best ironic part about this whole thing was my mom was would take us to the card shop. My brother would spend hours there and I have a limited attention span. I would spend like half an hour looking at cards and collectibles. She grew up in Winston-Salem, North Carolina and always loved, we had a lot of Tar Heels down the road. So loved Michael Jordan and had bought a bunch of basketball cards. And we were like, mom, that's so stupid. Nobody trades basketball cards. No one cares about basketball. And sure enough, she's like ended up buying a bunch of Michael Jordan, like rookie cards and everything else that are now worth 10x the rest of our collections combines goes to show just being in the right place, at the right time and following your passions and having a little luck, you end up with a can end up with a good investment. It's been a blast. I think we mentioned it enough today, but where do people follow you if they want to track what you guys are up to, your writings, your research? You know, if you want to register and see the investment opportunities on Equity Zen, we've put up a dedicated page. It's Equity Zen. So that's equityzen.com slash MEB, M-E-B. You can take a look, register there on the platform, see all the offerings we have. You do have to be an accredited investor. And if you want to read more of our content, you can also take a look at equityzen.com slash blog. And we put up all our content there. We've got a knowledge center, a way to think about all these companies. If you just want to kind of track it, those are the best places to go. Phil, one more question. And this, we can disclaimer this to the cows come home, because I don't know the answer to it. Because it seems to me like the accreditation is self-accredited. Let's say some high school kid signs up on your site. Who gets in trouble if they're not accredited? Does he get in trouble with the IRS? Does the government come down on you guys? Where, where does that fall? I've always been curious about that, and I don't know the answer. You know, the first thing I'll say is, a full disclaimer, this should not be taken as legal advice. You should consult your attorney for any other guidance. There are kind of two ways to get verified as an accredited investor in platforms. You can either do the kind of the self-accreditation where you attest that you make a certain amount of money or have a certain amount of assets, and then you go from there. And then the second form is that you actually go through a verification process where they go through some of your tax documents or some proof of assets, and and that's starting to kind of pop up a little more. As far as who it falls on, I would imagine that we have a responsibility to ensure that those that came into our investments were actually who they said they were. And I feel pretty confident that through our KYC and AML and checks that we have when we're doing diligence on each of the investors and every single investor in every single one of our deals, we would come across something that looked a little wonky. I believe this falls on, you can probably get in trouble if you're the person that swore or attested to something on a platform 
that this was who you were. I don't know if that falls under identity fraud or whatnot, but we as a we as a business also have a responsibility to make sure that you know those investors are who they said they are. So we we spend a lot of time on the compliance and regulatory side within our platform that I'm particularly proud of. It's certainly the least sexy part of our business also kind of gives us a bit of a competitive moat over time. Phil, it's been a blast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks very much for having me, Matt. Have a good one. Listeners, thanks for listening in today. We will add all these show note links, everything else, reference materials, books that we mentioned today to the podcast at mebfavor.com forward slash podcast. If you're loving the podcast, hating it, leave us a review. We love reading them. Jeff reads every single one, I promise. And if you like the new book, The Best Investment Writing, Volume 2, leave us a review as well. We'd love to see it. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing.